Okay, uh, let's turn to Matthew 4, uh, chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. If you're new to the Bible, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, uh, about two-thirds of the way through. <clears throat> Hold up your Bible when you're there. Awesome. I want to read together, and then uh, and then we're going to get into it. So, starting in verse seventeen, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending the nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Okay, so the first thing I want to point out this morning in this passage uh, is, is that it's a very important passage. This seems, I think, for me at least, it seemed like a transitional passage. And typically transitional passages don't really register to me as particularly important. But let me tell you that this is a very important passage for two reasons. First, this is the introduction for Matthew of the ministry of Jesus. Until this point, Jesus has been relatively quiet. He just left the wilderness, having been baptized by John. And as he hears of John's arrest, he goes to Galilee and he, and he begins his public ministry. And this is this, this several paragraphs uh, represent Matthew's introduction to the ministry of Jesus. And that alone would, would make it register on the Richter scale of important passages. However... This is also an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, my wife knows me very well, and she knows that when I get excited, I use superlative language. What I had written here is, it's an, important, it's an introduction to the perhaps most important sermon ever preached, which is, if you know me long enough, kind of the way I talk about things I'm excited about. In fact, I think just two weeks ago, I told Brett that Hebrews was perhaps the most important sermon ever preached, so... Just if I ever speak in superlative language, just take it with a grain of salt. But um, it is at the very least the first introduction of Jesus to the, uh, to the dawn of the kingdom that will rescue his people. The king has been sent to his people and he introduces himself to his people with the Sermon on the Mount. And that means the Sermon on the Mount is a big deal, okay? And this is the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Interestingly enough, there's about 30 or so different interpretations 
uh, attempts to understand the purpose and the meaning of the Sermon on the Mount. It has been discussed since the very beginning of our faith, and people approach it in different ways. Okay, and I'm going to suggest in the next few weeks that the right way to approach the Sermon on the Mount is by way of this passage. Okay? The, the few paragraphs prior to the Sermon on the Mount operate as an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to get into that next week. Um, so over the next two weeks, I want to answer two critical questions. Okay? One, why does Jesus call His disciples fishers of men? Okay? Why does Jesus call His disciples fishers of men? Okay? And, and the second question I want to answer is, what is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? Now, this passage will answer both those questions. And what we're going to do this week is we're going to answer the first one. What, why would Jesus call His disciples fishers of men? This is here, and it's here in a very important location, and it's here on purpose. And we've got to figure out what that purpose is. Because it's, I think, key to understanding the rest of the book. Okay, so we're going to answer the question, why does Jesus call his disciples fishers of men? And then next week, we're going to circle back on this passage, and we're going to answer the question, what is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount? Okay, okay so Jesus calls his disciples to become fishers of men, which is a little odd when you think about it. We're used to it because, you know, we are a part of a civilization that is very aware of Christianity. You probably have heard the term fishers of men since you were young. But it's an odd word picture, and it should strike you as odd, and it should cause questions to arise in your mind. What is Jesus talking about? Fishers of men. All right, we go, We're going to answer, what does that mean? But before we do that, we need to understand three things. Okay, So we're going to draw near to three things this morning. One... We need to understand the structure of this section. Right? This section of Matthew is structured brilliantly. Okay? And, and it helps to answer all the tough questions that we're going to come across over the next probably year, or probably maybe not a year. I don't know how long I'll be in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if I was John Piper, it'd be four years. Um, but uh, basically, every question we have as we sort of encounter this passage, chapters 5, 6, 7, and chapters 8 and 9 can be resolved by understanding the structure of the section. All right, So we're going to draw near a little bit to the structure of the section. And then I want to understand the reference behind the passage. Okay, So I'm going to argue with others that Jesus' use of the term fishers of men is not out of nowhere. He's actually referencing another passage in Scripture. So first we're going to study the structure of the passage. And then we're going to study the reference behind the passage And then I think we can land on the significance of this phrase, fishers of men. All right? All right. So strap in. All right. uh, I want to look at the structure of this section. All right. Have your Bible open because it's going to be helpful to see this. Okay? This section starts in chapter 4, verse 17, and it ends in chapter 9, verse 38. Okay? I'm going to give you broadly. The structure sections, I guess the, 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 the subsections of this section, and, and we're going to draw a little bit near to that. I'm going to show you where it is in the passage. Okay, so uh, first we have a heading. Okay, 
Um, that's, that's chapter 4, verse 17. Okay? And from the heading, we have a summary passage that explains the nature of Jesus' ministry. And that's chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. And then we have teaching. Now, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and, and Jordan, I'm actually going to have you go all the way back to these sections after I give a brief introduction. Just FYI. Uh, after the teaching, there's episodes of healing from chapters 8 and 9. And then finally, at the very end, we have another summary. Literally, exactly the same words that were used in chapter 4. Okay? I know I'm moving quick, but I'm excited about this. And I hope you will be too. All right, so let's start with the heading. All right, Jesus starts his ministry, um, and it and it's and it's the 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 summary of Jesus's preaching is in chapter four, verse seventeen. He says, "Repent, for the kingdom of of, of heaven." is at hand. And I'm suggesting that this is the way Matthew sets, uh, sets the, the, the chapter title, right? Uh, you can see in your Bible we have these little convenient little subheading markers that explain basically what's going on in the passage. I'm arguing that Matthew intends for you to see this broad sentence, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I think Matthew intends for you to see that as the subheading for this entire section, all right? This, this entire section is teasing out what Jesus means when he says, repent, for the kingdom of, of heaven is at hand, okay? Um, and, and let me just briefly define these terms, and we're going to see this play out from chapters 4 to chapter 9. Uh, what does repent mean? Well, you're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount that repent means turn from your sin and prepare yourself for God's coming kingdom. All right, and I'm, I'm giving you a little sneak preview. We're going to talk a lot about this next week. But repent means turn from your sin and prepare for God's coming kingdom. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what we're going to see in chapters 8 and 9 is visual, tangible representation that the king of the new kingdom offers freedom and healing and peace. Okay, So this is why I believe that this sentence actually represents a subheading of the next five chapters. Because when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he then preaches what it means to be repentant. And then he shows you what it means that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Through healing, and through freedom, and through peace. All right? Now, so that's our heading. Repent for the kingdom of, uh, of heaven is at hand. And then, immediately thereafter, we see this summary, starting in chapter 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So he's teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and he's healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And if you're a reader reading this sentence, you're thinking, gee, I wonder what he was saying when he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And I wonder what it looked like when he was healing every disease. And Matthew says, those are great questions. Let me answer them. Right? And then in chapter 5, he gives you what Jesus was preaching when he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom all the way through chapter 7. And then in chapters 8 and 9, 
he shows you what did it look like when Jesus was healing and giving freedom for those oppressed and giving peace to those in fear. Right? Everybody following me so far? Okay. Now, we get this, this summary statement and then his teaching begins 5-2 and ends through 7-28. And then... In chapters 8 and 9, we get all of these episodes of healing. So all of this, this summary statement is being teased out at length. And we've got the healing of a leper and the centurion's servant and Peter's mother-in-law and the demon-possessed men and the paralytic and the ruler's daughter and the blind man and the demon-possessed man. That's chapters 8 and chapter 9, literally teasing out the summary. And you guessed it, right at the end of the healing, right after having explained what was the nature of Christ's teaching and what was the nature of Christ's healing, you get one more summary. Literally the exact same words in chapter 9. Jesus went teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, is that enough evidence to argue that Matthew is actually really carefully structuring this passage? Right? This section of Matthew is crystal clear. And we're going to need that structure because we're going to have a ton of questions. We're going to have a ton of questions about the sermon. We're going to have a ton of questions about the nature of the healing. We're just going to draw back for the next little while. We're just going to draw back to the structure. And remember the point of the structure, which is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right. So, I want to point out something here about the structure. All right. I'm going to slow down for a second. I want to point something out about the structure. I want you to notice something beside both summaries. At the very beginning of this section and at the very end of this section, there's something in common. Okay? Beside both summaries is a call for disciples. In chapter 4, verses 19, Jesus says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then, if you look in chapter 5, verse 36, when he saw the crowds, I love this, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Both summaries are are back to back with this call for disciples okay all right so much for the structure all right let's what does the structure teach us all right what does the structure teach us um i think it teaches us that jesus calls disciples and that's a key feature of his ministry jesus's ministry represented by the phrase repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is, is right there central to his ministry is this call for disciples. We see at the beginning of the summary. We see it all throughout, all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. We see it in the midst of his episodes of healing. And then at the very end. So all throughout. There's this key feature of the ministry of Christ, which is a pre- preparation for the coming kingdom. And that is the call for disciples. Okay. All right. So my question now is, what does he call his disciples to do? Right? What does he call his disciples to do? I think now we can slow down. I was worried that that would take a lot longer than it did. 
Everybody take a breath. All right. Now we can dwell closely to what I think is a pretty brilliant reference. It's time to study the reference behind the passage. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And you might believe that was strange, except that Jesus is referencing here Jeremiah 16. Jeremiah 16. Now I'd like for you to turn there. And because I always take a long time to find Jeremiah in my Bible, I put my little thing there. So I beat you all this time. <laughs> Even though usually I don't. Jeremiah 16. Okay. Jeremiah 16. We're going to start in verse 11. Jeremiah 16, verse 11. Hold up your Bible when you're there. Great. Let's read together. Because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have gone after other gods, and have served and worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and have not kept my law, and because you have done worse than your fathers... For behold, every one of you follows his stubborn, evil will, refusing to listen to me. Therefore, I will hurl you out of this land into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods day and night, for I will show you no favor. Now, just to place this in context, God had sent and rescued a people from slavery. A long, long time before this passage was written, he rescued a people from slavery. And he called those people his people. And he gave them a law. And he gave them intimacy with him. He said, here's how you can serve me. Here's how you can follow me. And he brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And in that land, they rejected the Lord their God. And they left his law. And they worshipped other gods instead of him. For years and for decades and for centuries... Until God said finally, enough. So God casts his people out of the land as exiles because of their sin. All right, let's keep reading. Right on the heels, right on, this is how God works with his people, right on the heels of that rebuke, listen to what he says. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. So right on the heels of this this rebuke, right on the heels of this promise of, of consequences for their sin, he gives mercy. God promises to rescue His people from Israel. And and you're on the edge of your seat now. If you're Israel, you're on the edge of your seat. Knowing that exile is looming, how will He rescue us? How will He rescue us? And listen. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. How does God rescue His people? 
He sends for fishermen. He sends for fishermen. Hmm. Okay, so what is the reference behind this passage? Teach us. Well, I think it teaches us that when God rescues his people from exile, he sends for fishermen. Okay? So I think we're ready to answer the, the, the last question, which is what is the significance of the phrase fishers of men? All right? What is the significance of the phrase fishers of men? Well, one, I want to point out that in, in Jeremiah 16 and in Matthew 4 and in Matthew 9, you have these interchangeable terms. You have fishers who go out and fish the people from exile, and you have hunters who go out and hunt them in the clefts of the rocks and bring them back to the land, right? And then you have laborers for the harvest, the term that Jesus uses in chapter 9. And these are interchangeable terms. These are terms for for those who go out and, and rescue the people from exile and return them to the kingdom, okay? Second, when Jesus uses the term fishers of men, He is... Referencing Jeremiah uh, uh, 16, and thereby he's signaling that the exile of God's people is over. Okay? The exile of God's people is over. Anybody familiar with Jeremiah, when hearing Jesus say, I'm calling you to become fishers of men, you know what they're thinking? The kingdom's coming. The exile's over. God's mercy is here. Right? It signals that the exile of God's people is ended, and it signals that the kingdom of God is near. And it also, I think, represents God's people to use, God's purpose to use His people to find and rescue His people. Right? God has purposed from the beginning to use His people to find and rescue His people. People, characteristic of Jesus' ministry, as soon as he launches a public ministry, he's saying, Come on, come on, let's go fish men, right? He didn't have to. You think about that? He didn't have to. I mean, setting aside that he could just call legions of angels to do his, be- to do his bidding, setting, setting that aside, he doesn't need. Us, but he chooses to partner with us to accomplish his gospel work. All right. So God uses his people to find and rescue his people. Now I want to ask one more question. Who are God's people? Because I read this and I'm thinking exile and I'm thinking, oh, he must be talking about the people of Israel. He must be talking about the people of Israel. Now first, before we actually go back to Matthew 4, let me read you something Right on the heels of Jeremiah 16. Right, right there in Jeremiah 16 when he's talking about gathering his people. There's a song. Okay? There's a song and that song is the song of the redeemed. Right? It's, that song is the song of those people whom God has rescued from exile. And listen to this song. O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the days of trouble... To you shall the people of Israel come. What? Is that what it says? 
Well, you got to be reading with me. To you shall the nations come. To you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. And listen to God's words. Therefore, behold, I will make them know. This once I shall make them know my power and my might. And they shall know that my name is the Lord. That's my first bit of evidence that this work to rescue God's people from exile is not limited to the people of Israel. That's my first bit of evidence. I think it's strong evidence. I don't even know if we need any more evidence, but I'm going to show you more evidence. Matthew 4. Matthew 4. Go back. Matthew 4. Chapter 4, verse 24. Let's start in verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction from among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Israel. I did it again. I just tricked you again. Syria. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. Now, just to get a little technical, Syria is actually a a Roman province that encompasses Palestine, but it's broader than Palestine. Okay. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And listen, great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Okay, okay. now, what you need to know here is that basically Matthew just said, so the crowds followed him. Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles. Alright? These geographical locations are significant. Here's why. Syria is a Roman province. Okay? A Roman province. Which means... It's a mixed population of Roman citizens, Greek citizens, and native populations. Galilee was a, we talked about this a few weeks ago, Galilee was a mixed Jewish-Gentile population, about 50-50. The Decapolis was known as a center of Greek and Roman culture. Jerusalem and Judea, predominantly Jewish populations. Beyond the Jordan, Outside the promised land. We got this like these location notes that basically are teaching the reader the nations and the Israelites. The nations and the Israelites. God's sending out, God's sending out fishers to the world. Okay? That's my second piece of evidence that this is not limited to the people of Israel. Jesus' plea to repent and prepare for the kingdom was shouted to every tribe and tongue and nation. Now this has been a theme from the very beginning of Matthew, if you remember. He's just nations-oriented. Right? He's pointing, he's, he's weaving together scriptures from, from the very beginning of the Bible. And he's pointing out aspects of Jesus' ministry to say what he will say in Matthew 28. Right? 
Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All right? We're going to go get God's people. Okay. So who are the fishers of men? That was our original question. Who are the fishers of men? Who are the hunters? Who are the laborers of the harvest? I think this passage, and I think Jeremiah 16, the reference behind this passage, teaches us that the fishers of men are followers of Jesus who will labor to rescue God's exiled people from every tribe and tongue and nation and restore them to God's kingdom. The fishers of men are disciples who will labor to rescue God's exiled people from every tribe and tongue and nation and restore them to God's kingdom. Okay. All right. So if that's the case, if it's the case that, 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 that Jesus is calling fishers, and we know that He didn't just mean the disciples, right? Because in chapter 9, He looks at the disciples and says, pray for more laborers. Right? He didn't mean more apostles. Right? We have in chapter 28 this broad commission, go, make disciples. Okay, so, so if Matthew here is suggesting that, that followers of Jesus are those who labor alongside Jesus to rescue God's exiled people from every tribe and tongue and nation and to restore them to God's kingdom, then that has implications for you and for me. And I want to talk about those implications for a little bit. Okay, first, I think this one's pretty straightforward. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you have been sent as fisher, as a fisher of men. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you have been sent as a fisher of men. Paul tells Timothy, always do the work of the evangelist. Right? You. There are no passive Christians. You can't, you can't follow Jesus and sit in your house for the rest of your life. That's that's not actually following Jesus. There's actually, we're going to see this unfold throughout the book of Matthew. There are disciples and there are disciples. Right? And, and toward the beginning of his ministry, he's hugely popular. Jesus is hugely popular. And everybody's right there. Man, look at him healing people. And as he begins to call his disciples to repent, crowds start to fade away. That is a, that is a paradigm. That is, that, is a, that is true. There are many who get excited about Jesus and sit in their home. That's not following. That's not following. You are a follower of Christ if you follow His commands. And one of His commands is, let's go. Some go fishing. So, second, the disciples left everything immediately. The disciples left everything immediately. I think that's a model for us. Now, I want to I want to sort of dismiss uh, some some. There's been some inaccurate uh, 
a popular teaching about this passage, namely that uh, fishermen in the, in the Second T- Temple Judaism period were very poor. And, um, and they had nothing. And they were very unintelligent. A lot of people try and like make the gospel more inclusive by kind of placing the disciples of Christ in very, very like humbling positions. And sometimes that's true. You can see that, that they're not, you know, rabbinic students, right? They're not like, they have, they have the Bible memorized as far as we can tell. And, um, but, but sometimes we go by way of saying, well, they were very poor and they were very stupid. Um, in, in not so many words. Uh, the fishermen in this context were actually uh, maybe not quite wealthy, but very much middle class. They were like us. Okay? Fishermen made a good wage. Um, uh, they owned property. Uh, you can see James and John and their dad own a fishing boat and all the gear to go fishing. What you can see in another gospel is that when James and John leave, uh, uh, Zebedee, their father, actually uh, replaces them with hired servants. That's something that not a whole lot of families can do in this context. So, so all that to say, when they left everything, they actually left stuff. Okay? When the disciples left everything, they actually left stuff. And it was a big, hard decision. I mean, it, maybe it wasn't hard because the Spirit was moving, but what they were doing was they were stepping away from at least an income. And we know they were stepping away from more than that because here in a few chapters, we're going to see that Jesus heals Peter's who? Mother-in-law. Which means what? He was married. And so walk, basically, walking away from that fishing boat meant at least for Peter, oh no, what happens? This is, this is income. I'm seven, i got a family at home. Right? They left everything and they did it right away. And that's a model for us. When you're called to follow Christ, you're called to drop everything and follow Christ. That's going to mean different things for everybody. But immediacy is something that we can learn from. Amen? Okay. Okay. Third, until they're fished or hunted or gathered, the lost are lost. God's people are lost in exile until they're fished or hunted or gathered. Here's what I, the reason I point that out is because I think that we would do well to have the same disposition as Christ and listen to what he's thinking. This is a, this is a picture into the heart of God. Right? This is a picture into the heart of God. He saw the crowds and he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He saw the crowds and he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I think sometimes we have such a two-dimensional view of God that we're thinking about the world only wrath. Right? 
You find yourself watching television and saying, that guy deserved that. Right? This is God's thoughts. These are God's thoughts. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That compassion ought to drive us to go fishing. Amen? That compassion ought to drive us to go fishing. I was at the post office today. Not today. It's closed today. It's Sunday. I was at the post office yesterday. I overheard a man, an older guy. He said, I, I haven't received my retirement check. And I called these people, and they said it's at the post office. And I called the post office, and you guys can't seem to find it. I really need somebody to find that check. Because I'm $400 behind in late fees. May we have compassion on them. Because they are harassed and helpless. This world, we've just been reminded, is harsh. After the fall, things started to fall apart. May we be driven by compassion to go fishing. Amen? Okay. All right. Fourth. We don't just proclaim repent. And we don't just proclaim the kingdom of heaven. The gospel of the kingdom is both. Okay? There are poles in evangelical America. There are some people who most of the time say repent. And there are Others who most of the time say heaven. Right? None of those work alone. Neither of those work alone. We're going to look into the Sermon on the Mount over the next little while and we're going to see that you can't call someone to the kingdom without calling them to repent. And you can't Drive somebody's repentance without instilling hope in the kingdom. Right? So be careful when you go fishing not to just say one or the other thing. It's easy just to talk about heaven. Right? Always, if you just believe in Jesus, you just believe in Jesus. We used to talk about it like it was an insurance card. It's... It's not. It's the call to die. But we are all willing to die because the kingdom awaits, right? This balance of repentance and kingdom of heaven is coming, that is the gospel. That is the gospel. So as you go out fishing, make sure you bring the gospel and not just part of it. Amen? All right. Last thing. This is coming from chapter 9. Even as we labor for the harvest, we must pray for laborers. The the Scriptures call us to hard things. And then they remind us that God does all the hard things. Right? One of my favorite passages, 
Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to work according to His purpose. And you're left going, what? 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 Am I? Is it, is it me? Is it? Well, hang on. Can you repeat that? Right? That's the nature of the Gospel. The Lord calls us to pray to Him to send laborers into the harvest. Two things here. Anytime we find ourselves at the end of ourselves, anytime we find ourselves unwilling and without compassion and at the edge of frustration or afraid, I don't want to talk to that guy because he's a jerk, or I don't want to talk to that guy because I might lose my job, you run to the Lord of the harvest and you plead, you plead. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is we're not, we're not going to actually do the work of evangelism as a church unless we're pleading with the Lord to make us evangelists. We're not going to do the work of evangelism. We're not going to be the kind of church that goes out and reaches our community and knows them by name and serves them when we can. We're not going to be the kind of people who, who, who know all the managers of the apartment complexes just so we can get a foot in the door. We're not going to be that kind of people unless we plead to the Lord to change our hearts. And to send us into the harvest. Amen? Practical application point. Tuesday night at my house every night we pray about this too. Come over. Pray to the Lord of the harvest with us. Amen? Amen.